Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you in your journey with Christ. For additional resources, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning. We're glad you're here this morning. Uh, We're here to worship, to open our hearts, our lives, our minds, and uh, these Next couple of messages that we handle out of the Scripture, the Gospel of John, are sort of the the centerpiece of it all. And uh, if you're struggling anywhere uh, about your Christian life, if you are, if you're not even, if you haven't laid down your life, I can't, I can't imagine any two weeks that would be more pertinent for you, because it's all about the cross of Christ. The Bible says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let us walk with you. Let us help you and answer your questions and and love you to that supreme decision. Repentance is an act of the will. Our wills have to be involved, and we have to be buried and and raised up to new life. The the, the text we turn to today in John's gospel is one of those that's difficult to handle, just because... Because of the very depth, the emotional depth it takes us to in, in wrestling with Jesus. I was a pretty shy kid in seventh and eighth grade. I didn't have many friends, and I hated school. And, and I remember Mr. Sondergeld's class. It was seventh grade uh, geography. And how in the world we got to Gethsemane, I don't know. But that subject came up, and, and he said, you know, that's when Jesus sinned. It got my attention, you know, and he said, yeah, Jesus sinned in Gethsemane because he was, he was struggling. He struggled and, and didn't want to die on the cross. And, you know, I was just, I didn't say anything. I, I was just shy kid. I raised my hand. I said, Jesus never sinned. He said, well, I don't agree. I shut up. I didn't know what to say. I hadn't taken apologetics then. I didn't know what came next. We see Jesus struggled today. <clears throat> if you've ever struggled in temptation, if you've ever struggled with the will of God, if you've, ever, if you've ever not wanted to do what God wanted you to do, but ended up doing it anyway because of obedience to him, you haven't sinned in that process. I don't think anywhere in Scripture do we come more to terms with the humanity of Jesus than what we see in John 18 and 19. For three and a half years, Jesus had been watched by the official band of Jewish leaders whose hostility grew with each passing month. And these leaders were cunning as foxes, and they were ruthless as wolves as they formed this unholy alliance, uh, plotting the demise of Jesus, the Son of God. And as we pick up this account in John 18 today, the plot has finally reached its climax. It's late at night. Jesus has finished his prayers in Gethsemane. And with what irony that this cohort of Roman soldiers, that's at least 200 soldiers, came in the darkness of night holding torches and lanterns to find the light of the world. John says in the first chapter of his gospel, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it, and certainly they didn't. And so we begin with the arrest. Verse 4, 
chapter 18, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked him, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I'm not sure about the mystery of what just happens there when these soldiers fall to the ground, but my guess is, and I think it's a pretty good guess, that for a brief moment, Jesus allowed the veil to be lifted, and for an instant, they got a glimpse of the sheer glory of God, and they couldn't handle it, and they were struck. What is it you want, he asked them. Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you, I'm he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. He offered no resistance. Not so with Peter, who drew his sword and started slashing away and sliced off the ear of Malchus. Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him. Gethsemane for Jesus, of course, was this turning point. It was a place of preparation for him, for death. He was not forced to die. We're reminded in this garden scene every time. He was not forced to, but he willingly laid down his life. He had told us that, but here we see him actually doing it. He was fully divine, fully human. We'd like to think because he's all God that somehow he didn't suffer like we would have suffered. He didn't feel it like the weight of it like we would have felt it. Not so. He was fully divine, but he was also fully human, tempted in every way that we've been tempted, but without sin, the Bible says clearly. Jesus here would weigh the reasonings of man against the will of God. He had to wrestle with this cup of suffering. Was this the only way redemption is possible, God? Is there any other way for your perfect plan to be carried out? Is there another way that you can rescue the people on planet Earth without me having to go through this? But he continues to step forward in the valley of the shadow of death. And faced assuredly what was before him under the outline of the cross. With resolve, he rises from this place of wrestling with the Father's will. And he teaches us about living in perfect peace. Even in the midst of life circumstances that you you wish you didn't have to walk through. But you see... We all need Gethsemanes. We don't want them. I mean, it's it's not healthy to go looking for them. But when they come, we shouldn't resist them. Because something happens in Gethsemane that doesn't happen anywhere else in the course of our discipleship following Jesus. It's agonizing. I remember our spiritual pilgrimage we took to Israel and Jerusalem. And I remember being in Gethsemane. And my meditation broke into weeping. Because I thought of those occasions when a sermon wasn't well prepared. Or was sloppily presented. Or when a youth retreat my early years was 
put together haphazardly or when I did anything, any kind of service with the wrong motivation in my heart or if I did to make sure other people knew about it. Times when I took too lightly the sin in my own life. Times when I assumed on the grace of God. Times when people dozed off while I was preaching. I tell myself it's only the medication they're on. And I promise to God, you know, God, I'll do my best never to be boring. I have failed at times. We need Gethsemane. Uh, we, we need Gethsemane's prayer for that unusual strength we need in facing a temptation, in dealing with the anti-crowd who doesn't really understand Jesus and why we would want to follow him and how foolish it seems to them. We need Gethsemane just for obedience to God's will. Not, not, I'm not talking about will and which job I should do, which degree program I should go to, what university I should go to, who I should marry. Just, just being who God wants me to be. I, 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 I need Gethsemane to wrestle with that and seeing myself. I, I, need, I need Gethsemane to wrestle with the faith God has called me to that is still so often tainted and weak and fleshly. You know, God, God, God is shaping us, and there's a lot of free, free will he's given us in, in, under the umbrella, the canopy of his permissive will, but through all of that, whatever those decisions are, he gives us permission to do, but he wants us to be found mature in Christ. He wants us to be alive in Christ. He wants us to have a living testimony of what Jesus has done to change our lives. We need Gethsemane's for that. And I'm, I don't really believe that without Gethsemane's, we can ever be who God wants us to be. That's what Gethsemane's do. We wrestle so that we can emerge better than when we enter the garden then we have the trials. In all, there were six trials. There were three Jewish trials where Jewish was charged with blasphemy. We have three Roman trials where he's charged with treason. And certainly we know the injustices of our own prison system and our, and our judicial system. We know that people who have been treated unfairly, and some suggest 10% of people in our prison system are innocent. Um, there's also people that go scot-free on a technicality when they should have to be paying for their crime. It's the part of being a fallen world as well. We have an imperfect system. The entire, you know, this, the, what Jesus dealt with was the, the most, most unjust trials of all. He was arrested for a capital crime. Um, and according to Jewish law, it had to be done in daylight. Well, here it is, the darkness. That, that command, that, that law was ignored. A capital crime couldn't be based on the testimony of a follower of the one being charged. And there was Judas leading the way, so that was ignored. No Jewish trial could be held between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m., but these were. After, after testimony is given, the Jewish court must, are, are dismissed. They go to their homes uh, for two nights. Then they are reassembled. And they're heard, they hear testimony once again before they render a verdict. That was ignored. 
the Sanhedrin, when they're gathered, they vote one at a time to make sure that they are just not influenced as a mass group coming together. That was ignored as well. The entire set of Jewish trials was a gross miscarriage of justice. John records his, his brief meeting before Annas, who could be compared to a mafia boss of the day. He owns and operates the money-changing system of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus goes in twice. At the beginning of his ministry, at the end of his ministry, he overthrows the, the, the tables, the money changing that's been, been, been done in a very unholy, ungodly way where people are being taken advantage of. Annas is over that. For 17 years, he had served as high priest. Now he's high priest emeritus. So the 70-year-old Annas probes Jesus on two counts, his teaching and his disciples. Verse 19, John 18 says, I have spoke openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And Jesus was slapped for his response. Caiaphas is... Annas' son-in-law, and equally corrupt as his father-in-law. Mark 14 provides the record, but will suffice to say that in this religious show of pretense, Caiaphas rips his clothes, acting as if he is there to protect the name of God. He says in Mark 14, 64, they all condemned him. Or Mark records, they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Under Roman law, the Jews were prohibited from, from sentencing anyone to death. So they sent Jesus to stand trial under Pilate, the Roman governor, who was in Jerusalem at that time, making sure that everything just stayed peaceful for the Jews. They were a rowdy bunch, and they liked to cause problems. They were a headache to Pilate. They were a headache to Rome. And, and, and Pilate had been called on the carpet before in Rome because he hadn't handled things very well. There were too many of these skirmishes that were happening in Jerusalem. And so this Roman governor, Pilate, of course, he doesn't care about the charge of blasphemy, and so the accusation is altered to treason. There are four steps in the Roman legal system. The first one is accusation. 1830 says, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. And notice, of course, they don't answer directly. They really don't have a charge. They haven't agreed on a charge. That's another injustice. You, you can't arrest somebody without a charge, but they didn't have a charge that, 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 that held any water. Then there's the interrogation. Verse 33 says, are you the king of the Jews? That's what Pilate asked. Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? And then the defense. Now, until now, Jesus has been pretty quiet uh, and uh, evasive. And so he defends in verse 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. 
Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. And then comes the verdict. Convinced that Jesus was not a threat to Rome and that his activities did not constitute treason, Pilate renders his verdict. I find no basis for a charge against him. Now, Pilate discovers that Peter is, uh, uh, sorry, Jesus is a Galilean. And so he sends Jesus to Herod, who has jurisdiction over Galilee, northern Israel, who is also in Jerusalem. And so John's record does not include that trial, that conversation with Herod, so we're going to bypass that as well. But after meeting Herod, Jesus is sent back to Pilate. Nobody knows what to do with him. The question comes, you know, what, what, what do, eventually, what will you do with Jesus? It's a question that, that, that is driven down through the ages. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with him? Every person who hears the name Jesus has to make a decision about him and respond accordingly. Well, after meeting Herod, as I said, he sent back to Pilate. So Pilate's up against the wall. He responds by using this bargaining tool, verse 39. It's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Uh, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Through all of this, of course, uh, there's, there's nothing but a kangaroo court going on. And while Jesus was on trial, and it appeared that way, who was really on trial was Annas and Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate and the Sanhedrin. They were on trial regarding their own integrity, their own uprightness, their, their, own, their own admission to truthfulness and righteousness. Those trials were a miscarriage of justice as, as well because they, for the time being, appeared to walk free, all of those, even though there was the judgment seat of Christ in his exaltation that they would yet have to face. So preparations had been made for three executions on three crosses, which had already been ordered and made. They were ready. And at the last minute, there's this, this change. For Barabbas was freed, and Jesus, the Son of God, condemned to die. So on whose cross would Jesus die? Certainly on the cross, prepared for Barabbas, but by implication, the cross prepared for you and me. Now, while the trial is going on, there's another sub-story going on, and we know it well, the denial. Emerson once wrote, there's no fear like the fear of being known. What's the worst thing you ever did? What's the worst thing you prayed your parents would never find out about? I trust it's not yet to be committed. What's the thing you're most embarrassed about? The thing that, that, that you just, you, you hope God will never bring it up to you ever. And you can't believe you did that or said that or went there. 
whatever it is. And then, you know, uh, you find out it's going to be on 60 Minutes. In fact, God wants it on 60 Minutes. And we want to think, oh, well, God would never do that. Oh, no? Well, what about Abraham's lie and, and, and Noah's drunkenness and indecent exposure? Uh, or, or, or what about Moses' murder, the sexual escapades of David or Gomer or Amnon, the uh, faithlessness of Jonah or the thievery of Achan. It's all there for posterity preserved in Scripture. Now, Peter is known as the rock, but this is a cracked rock. Although he had boasted that he would die for Jesus, there was this pride issue, this self-assurance. And although Jesus warned Peter that he would deny him, Peter was insistent in Mark 14, 31, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. How unself-aware we are, aren't we? We should be very careful when we utter the words, I promise I will never We're not very good at that, are we? So while Jesus is on trial, a question is posed by a servant girl. Verse 17, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter, I'm not. The text goes on, 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants a relative of a man whose ear Peter had cut off challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. Despite that one accuser saw him in the garden with Jesus, another could tell that from his accent that he was from Galilee, which is another clue to Peter's identity. He failed to give testimony regarding his friendship with Jesus. Three things to always remember. When we ask... How did this fall take place? Of all people, he's the least one we would have expected. Well, he thought he was above falling, for one thing. Never think in any category of your life, my life, that we are above falling. Of course we are. We're fickle people. How many times have we looked at our lives and said, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did. I can't believe I agreed with her. I can't believe I joined in in that conversation I can't believe I really did that. Where did that come from? How did I make that choice? He also was alone in the wrong company. That's why community with God's people is so precious and valuable to us. We don't want to, be, we don't want to isolate ourselves, but we want to make sure when we, are, when we are rubbing shoulders with darkness that we want a community of people around us as well. Someone one person at least, to be in community with us so we can strengthen one another. He felt threatened also by the possible outcome. Is he next as a follower? Is he the next one that might be on trial? So the conviction came when the rooster crowed, just as Jesus predicted as the word of warning. Then came the piercing of his own soul. And then Luke is the only biographer of Jesus that records this little statement that while this denial is happening, Jesus walks out of the trial. It says, this is what he says. He said, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. 
Ever wonder what's in the look? Was it Peter? A look of disappointment? A look of shame? A look of condemnation? How could you, Peter? I thought you were my friend. I said I give you the keys of the kingdom, and this is what you do? This is the thanks I get? I think it was a look of grace. Or maybe because that's what I want. Every time I fail the Lord, I so want a look of grace, don't you? Later in the resurrection account, of course, you'll remember that they got, the men got to the tomb. It was an angel. He's not here. He is risen. You know? And, and there, there, was the, there was the angel appearing to Mary. Mary, go tell the disciples and Peter. Make sure you tell Peter. What a Savior. What a Savior. And so the account continues. And this message of challenge of this backwards Galilean, that look of grace, that word of grace, he's risen, he's not here, was enough to, to change this backwards Galilean to carry the gospel of the second chance all the way to Rome where they killed him. And he found himself so unworthy to be crucified like Jesus. He asked to be crucified upside down. What, what makes a person go to that extent? What makes a person go that far with his life? It's that, it's that look of grace. It's that be sure to tell Peter. You know, I, it's not every day that you find someone who will give you a second chance. Let alone someone who will give you a second chance every day of your life. Until you stand before the Lord. What a God. What a Savior. And then the preparation. The prelude to the resurrection is confined to two places. The judgment hall and the guard room. Where three things happen. There's a humiliation of Jesus, first of all. Verses 1 through 3 of 19. Then Pilate took Jesus, had him flawed. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. And they beat him with either ropes in, that, that, that were knotted or the cat of nine tails embedded in those strips of leather, uh, tiny pieces of lead or sharp bones to make sure the cutting of the flesh went deeply. And they put this crown of thorns, mocking him as king of the Jews, purple robe on him, this crown of thorns, which is so intriguing at this time. We come to this a year and a half after, at, toward the close, we trust, of the coronavirus. You've seen, you've seen pictures, images of it enough of the virus to be well acquainted. The corona is crown, and it's got these thorny things on it. And we have been terribly preoccupied by this coronavirus, 
this thorny crown attacking us for a year and a half. And oh, that we would be all the more preoccupied by the crown of thorns on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then although Pilate, although Pilate presents him proclaiming that he finds no fault in him, the crowd cries, crucify him, crucify him. And comes the identification of Jesus in verses 7 through 12. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So it was approaching 9 a.m. on that Friday that we call good, and Pilate once more took his official seat in the courtyard of his palace. And we have the presentation of Jesus. It comes when Pilate turns to Jesus and with contempt for the place he'd been put in, exclaimed, here is your king. And the only answer to this hateful rejection was a hurricane of cries, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. The trials are officially over. The jury has rendered its verdict. And the blood of Jesus is fast on its way to be completely poured out for you and me. Pilate symbolically washes his hands in front of the crowd, the crowd cheers. The disciples are nowhere to be found. In a few short days, the cries went from Hosanna to crucify. And it pauses, causes me to pause and wonder, you know, where, where, where am I when the Lord's life and reputation hang in the balance? Am I silent? Not my problem. Do I take myself down another conversation alley so I don't have to go there? I wash my hands of the whole thing. See, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to stand by Christ condemned when it's so easy to be wishy-washy about him and others are shouting, crucify him, criticizing the foolishness of believers even following Jesus, wanting to be like him. Yet he never leaves us or forsakes us. The strange, strange allies form at the cross. Either those who are standing for Jesus or those who are standing against him. So on another occasion on our pilgrimage in Jerusalem, in Israel, nearing our last day, we walked the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross, following the stations of the cross. Now, the stations of the cross come out of 
high church, uh, Episcopalians, Catholics, um, Anglican worshipers, they will use that. That's how I viewed them. I did not want to do the Stations of the Cross. It just seemed too denominational. It became, it became the turning point in my life. There we were on the Via Dolorosa, a group of about six or eight of us with a leader, and all this shopping going on around us, all this noise. I thought it must have been that way that Friday. And we got to the place where Jesus, they say, fell under the weight of the cross. And we were reminded how many times Jesus would have fallen on the way. And I remember still the leader saying, Jesus kept getting up so that when you fall, you can always get up. I just wept. Think of all the times I've fallen and needed the grace of God every time to lift me up. How, how far did you fall this week? Was it by language, by spirit, by failing to open the scripture, by not praying, by that conversation, by what you watched or what you read or you let your mind go to? Maybe there have been times when you said, boy, I'm never going to say that again. I'm never going to act like that again. I'm never, I'm never going to do that again. And you found yourself doing it again. And maybe so many times that you've even stopped asking for forgiveness because what's the point? Jesus kept getting up for you. He kept getting up. Jesus, the condemned, who was innocent. Let's pray. We are stunned by you, our Father. For we know our hearts. We know how, how easily we shut down our minds or our hearts when the Spirit is convicting us. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for getting up over and over again under the weight of the cross. Thank you, Father, for granting him to us that we might know a Savior for sin. And I pray, Father, this scene never lightens. We never grow tired of it. We will never see it only as a history lesson of our Lord's life. But we will witness him in all his glory and his radiance and his supremacy as our Savior 
and our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. It's our desire to help you grow as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church, would like to attend an online service, or plan an in-person visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast directly to your device, we encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.